We did it, friends. We made it. However, whatever your Christmas, holiday, New Year's was like, we made it. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for being here this morning. I'm proud of me for being here this morning. Here's just a little glimpse of uh, my last few weeks with my family. See if you can relate. Started that way. Kind of had a little bit of that. Some of that. Not enough. Lots of that. Tiny bit of that. That. I won't tell you why. A little bit of that. A little bit of that. Mostly on my fault. And in the end, aw. I know, thank you. Thanks for just humoring me. Families, whatever, whatever shape they're in, families and feelings go hand in hand, right? And, and every family has their own unique and slightly dysfunctional way of processing and handling emotions and feelings. None of us comes through our family life emotionally unscathed, undamaged. Sorry, parents, it's just the truth. You're going to mess them up, okay? None of the people in the Bible, except Jesus, came through family life emotionally unscathed. There's murder, adultery, incest, bribery, lying, trickery, kidnapping, and on we go, right? We haven't even gotten out of Genesis and all that has happened. It's a veritable real housewives of Mesopotamia, right away in the Bible. Family plus feelings equals hard. It's just the equation. And that's why we wanted, like Jeff said, to start this year off with this series because these are two things, families and feelings, that we all have in common no matter where we are in life's journey. And learning to honor and handle emotions in our families is really important work. And it's an opportunity, if we accept it, for spiritual transformation. And so we're going to spend January thinking about how to wisely navigate feelings. And since most of us do pretty well with positive feelings, we're going to focus on some tough ones. Okay? Disappointment. Anger. Sadness, worry, and I get to explore this morning the amazing, fun-filled emotion of shame. Everybody ready? We want, we want this to be a, a series full of grace. We want you to leave a little less burdened. We want you to laugh a little, okay? So please laugh with me this morning, okay? We want to be helpful and hopeful and bring the truth and grace of Jesus into the midst of our life together as families. We are made in the image of a God who experiences emotions. Understand that. But he, experienced them, them, he experiences them perfectly, if that makes sense. We see this especially in the life of Jesus, God the Son, who wept who made jokes, and, and hopefully he laughed. He felt compassion and grief and sadness, and he felt so much joy that he wants to make his joy ours. 
So we want you to understand that emotions aren't in and of themselves sinful. They are powerful and beautiful and good, and they are what makes life worth living. Emotions, if we name and honor them, can also provide powerful information to us about ourselves and what we love and what we value and what or who matter to us. Emotions contain data. But they have, hi, do you need me? This is always my biggest fear that I'm doing something wrong and Alex has to correct it. No TV? Okay. Just watch things on the screens, friends. Emotions, if we name and honor them, can provide valuable information to ourselves, but they are also, also deeply damaged by sin. And they can get the best of us and cause great damage before we even realize what's happening. Hello, angry texting. Have you ever done it? Hello, road rage. Hello, hating your neighbor who cheers for the other team. Can you believe Iowa lost yesterday, FYI? Like, what on earth? They had it. Anyway, this teaching is no substitute for counseling or professional help, right? So we want to make sure we say that if you need that. You know, if this brings up some stuff for you, and who doesn't need help, email me directly. You can find my email on the church website, and I will send you a list of some of the best counselors I know, many of whom I have seen myself. So, there we go. Let's talk about shame, friends, okay? Shame, by definition, is an intensely painful feeling that erupts from the thought that I am deeply flawed and not worthy of love and acceptance. Shame makes me feel like there's something deeply wrong with me. So wrong that if others see the real me, I will be rejected. I want to tell you a personal story about shame. I was a part of a women's group, a group of friends and neighbors with whom I raised my kids. And we met and we talked about life and marriage and kids and careers, and we laughed and we cried and we cheered each other on. Until one of the women uh, left the group, she quit. And she didn't tell us why. And we knew she was sad, we knew she was upset, we knew something bad had gone on, but none of us knew what happened. And I was of the mindset that we're all grown women, right? If you want to quit and you're not going to tell us why, that's fine, and I'm not going to chase you down. <laughs> I was just kind of in la-la land about it. And this went on for weeks or months. We met, and she didn't come, and there was discussion about why did so-and-so quit? We feel so bad. She's so sad. She's so upset. And then one day, a brave and kind friend decided to tell the truth. And so I got a phone call. And she said, Could, can I come over and talk to you? And I still didn't know. I, st I still didn't know what was going to happen. And she sat me down with all the kindness in the world, and she told me, basically, you're the one. 
you, you did it. You said something so painful to this woman that she quit. And I, yeah, I felt guilty because I was guilty, okay? I said something hurtful. I have no doubt about that. But the way this story played out, the way this happened, created shame in me. And my first instinct was to hide. And so like the grown-up that I am, <laughs> after my friend left, I walked straight upstairs, hot tears of shame rolling down my cheeks, face red, stomach churning, and I crawled into my bed, and I pulled the covers over my head, and I didn't emerge for hours, if not a day. I felt so deeply flawed. Shame has a voice, see? Shame says, I told you so. I told you you would be found out to be damaged goods. Because you are. You are beyond repair. Not because of something you did, but because of who you are. You are not worthy of love and acceptance. That's shame. Now, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Parents, listen so closely to me here because this is so important as you raise kids. Guilt is a focus on behavior. I did something bad. I did something wrong. Shame is a focus on self. I am bad. There's a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, that kind of gets at this. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Guilt is something we do. It can bring about, if we let it, godly sorrow. Guilt, we can take responsibility for. We can ask for forgiveness. We can be set free from it. I tried to face what I did once I got out of my bed. I mean, I repented. I tried to make amends to say I was sorry. I said something that hurt you. Can you please forgive me? I didn't mean to. I'm so sorry. That's guilt. But shame, worldly sorrow, tends to be shapeless, if you know what I mean. It morphs quickly into something we can't get our arms around, and it feels unfixable, like there's nothing we can do to make it go away. Shame is a liar, or at least a bearer of dark half-truths. Shame accuses us, and then it convinces us that we're broken, and then it tells us to hide before we get discovered and then rejected. Shame makes us feel isolated and alone. The perfect breeding ground for shame to grow. Whew, this is heavy. So what do we do with shame? What do we do with shame in our families? 
How do we navigate shame in our church family? There are no easy answers. But for the next few minutes, I want to share with you some hope from Scripture about shame. The first thing I want you to understand is that shame is ancient and universal. Shame shows up at the very beginning of things. Right after God created man and woman, we read this, Genesis 2.25. The man and woman, this is Adam and Eve, were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay, the man and woman were naked. Everybody giggle. Okay, get this over with, all right? It's like fifth grade class. The writer here of Genesis is using this imagery to let us know that there was a time when human beings were completely trusting, completely vulnerable, completely free with God, with themselves, and with each other. There was nothing hidden, no secrets, no shame. But when we turn to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall from grace, and they disobey God. And shame is the first emotion on the scene. Again, the writer uses imagery to describe this. He says, then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. Just think about this for a minute, okay? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Next slide. Then the man and his wife, look what happens. They heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin enters the picture and everything changes. Adam and Eve recognize their nakedness, right? They see their vulnerability, they see their failure, they see their sin, and they immediately try to cover themselves and hide from God. They tried to deal with their shame themselves with little fig leaves, okay? This is the best picture I could find. All the other ones were, you know, iffy for a Sunday morning. <laughs> there they are, right? And when God asks them, hey, what's up? Where are you? I mean, he knows where they are, okay? <laughs> when he asks them this, they blame each other. This is shame's game. Cover, hide, blame. This is shame's game. I feel like I should be leading a cheer. Cover, hide, blame. This is shame's game, friends. Cover, hide, blame. And our little fig leaves that we try to sow for ourselves are never enough. And so there's this beautiful piece of imagery at the end of Genesis chapter 3. As God has to send the first humans out of the perfect garden because of their sin... God, in his grace, does a little sewing project. 
Look at this. Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, this is not about Adam and Eve getting new leather coats for Christmas, okay? This is about God, in his grace, covering not human bodies, but human shame. It is a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ, and it is a statement of truth that only God's grace can deal with our shame. Parents, you can teach this story to your children. You can even buy, I checked this online, fig leaves online, and you can act this out. Okay, I would like to be there for that drama when you do this. But you can teach your kids about the difference between sin and shame It's so important for them to understand. And for us, when you and I feel shame, we are entering an ancient story. The story behind all stories. We are never alone when we feel shame. It's everywhere. But know this. Intimacy with God and with others came first. That is our birthright. Shame is second, and it is a liar, and it will try everything it can to get us to hide from ourselves, from each other, and from God. And our fig leaves will never cover us. Only God's garment of grace will do. Shame is ancient and universal. Shame tells a story. Shame has a voice. This is what it is. You are not enough. You never have been enough, and you never will be enough. You not only do wrong things, but you are irredeemably wrong. So try to cover yourself up and hide this truth, or God and others will reject you, and you will deserve it. That's shame's voice. And if we are not careful, this story can win the day in our family life and in our kids' lives and in our faith community. So I want to talk for just a moment to parents. And not only parents of younger kids, but parents of adult kids too, because it is never too late to alter your story that your family lives by. Parenting based on shame can be overt and obvious, right? We can look at something and say, that's what that is. It can look like name calling, like you're such an idiot. I wish I never had you. It it can look like vague threats of rejection or parents giving their kids the silent treatment if they don't live up to their expectations. Shame-based parenting can look like insinuating to your child not just that they do bad things, but that they are bad. They are deeply flawed. It can look like sighs of disappointment when your child fails or extreme yelling at youth sports. 
It can look like passive-aggressive comparisons to other kids or to siblings or to yourself when you were younger. It can look like making comments about your daughter's weight or your son's speed or desire to play the clarinet rather than offensive linemen. Offensive linemen. I said that wrong, didn't I? Not offensive linemen. (laughs) Shame can be sneaky too, though. It can be quiet and subtle. So subtle that we don't even know we're doing it. Shame-based parenting can look like this constant undercurrent of perfectionism. Who can live up to that? It can look like incessant overscheduling and never giving your kids time to breathe or just be without having to perform. It can look like telling kids not to cry or teaching kids that faith in Jesus is only about being good and avoiding sin and keeping all the rules. Shame's story in parenting is both the loudest and the sneakiest around. But there is another story. There's another story that we can choose to live by, and it goes like this. You were created by God and called very good. You are God's artwork and deeply loved. Yes, you are flawed and sinful like every other human being, but not irredeemably. God loves you so much that he took your sin and shame upon himself so that you could be free of both of those things. So you can bring your whole self to God and you can bring your whole self to others and they will not be surprised by what they see nor will they reject you. Is this the story your family lives by? My dad and mom mostly did. They let us figure out, navigate faith without a lot of pressure. When I almost burned our entire house down by turning our sauna to high rather than to off, my dad said, oh no, honey, that was my fault, not yours. I messed up the wiring. Tip, he didn't mess up the wiring. (laughs) Or when my brother was learning to drive and mistook the accelerator for the brake as he pulled into our garage, thus driving the car right through the back wall, My dad taught him how to go into reverse, and then my dad quietly just walked around to the back of the garage and pushed the wall back into place. Now, my folks were clear. You messed up. You did something wrong. But you are not wrong as a person, and we will never reject you. They let us know, and they still let us know that they believe in us, and they are for us, and that they take delight in us. God wants our families. God wants each one of us. God wants our church to live in the story that grace tells. Because shame is a liar.
Shame is ancient and universal. Shame tells a story. And shame has only one antidote, only one remedy. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, there are almost no details around the actual moment of crucifixion. There is great detail, however, about all the shameful things Jesus had to endure on his way to the cross. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was given a sham trial. He was stripped naked, whipped. A fake crown of thorns was crushed into his head. He was mocked, called names, spit upon, beaten up, rejected, scorned, laughed at, teased, and he hung on a cross, dying a shameful criminal's death, naked and alone. These are verbs of shame. My shame and your shame. Carried up a hill and nailed to a cross on our behalf. Jesus didn't just bear our sin to the cross. He bore our shame too. Shame for our past, shame for our failures and our weaknesses and the things that we struggle with, shame for our addictions, shame for what our parents or siblings said to us or said about us, shame for the things we say to ourselves about ourselves. All the ways we tell ourselves we're worthless or we're not good enough. Shame about our kids. Shame about our marriage. Shame about our family or our sexuality or our body or our work or our life or whatever. Your shame and mine was experienced and felt and handled on the cross. Paid for. Done. Will you let Jesus handle your shame for you? Will you please teach your kids to let Jesus handle their shame? On the cross, you see, shame was co-opted by the love and grace of Jesus. 
And so now, followers of the king, when we sin, which we will, and when we feel shame, which we will, we don't need to find fig leaves to try to cover up. We don't have to run and hide alone and fearful in the bushes. When we feel shame now, we run, yes, but not away from God like Adam and Eve. Instead, now we run toward God when we feel shame, toward the cross, It's the only place solid enough, weighty enough to handle our shame as we lay it down at the feet of Jesus and leave it there for good and walk away with the story of grace singing in our ears. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are mine. I will never leave you or forsake you. I delight in you. Families. Shame grows in the dark like mildew in your shower. But 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 shame dies in the light of day in the light of grace-filled spaces. So with our kids, in our marriages, in our church, let's de-shameify shame by talking about it. Let's drag it out from the dark and into the open. We all feel it. It's ancient and universal. It wants to tell us a story, but we can choose another, and there's only one antidote. So the next time shame knocks on your door, or the door of one of your kids, your family's door. You tell shame to go measure how far the east is from the west and to get back to you. Because that's how far God in Christ carried both sin and shame to the cross for you and your household. Shame is a liar. Don't let it run your family. Don't let it run your life. And let's not let it run our church. Amen. Let's pray. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the deepest, darkest, most shame-filled places in all of us. You are not surprised. You are not shocked. You are not repelled because you paid for those things. You and in Jesus experienced those things. Those things were nailed to the cross. And so I pray now, God, for freedom from shame for every single one of us. I pray that you would help us to remember that shame is a liar. That shame is the wrong story for us to live by. And I pray right now that every single one of us who are feeling shame or will feel shame will remember that because of Jesus, we don't run away from God, but we run toward him. It's the only place where shame can be taken off our shoulders because it was carried on the shoulders of another.